I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the sailor's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing, culture, and life, past, present, and future. Coming up on today's episode, Scott gets drunk and has a discussion with a priest and a rabbi. But first, let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, raced international 14s, and crossed the Atlantic countless times. A published author who has written for both stage and screen, Mr. Scott Dodson. Yeah, hey Todd, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. So what is today's episode about? Well, today's episode is about, um, really it's about those things you learn about yourself and maybe you learn about either your faith or lack of faith um, when surrounded by layers upon layers upon layers of, of history. And it, as a result of an experience I had, um, my first Greek Easter, and um, the time I spent with a Greek Orthodox priest and a uh, young rabbi. Um, very interesting time, and um, a lot about sailing, a lot about history. But really, it's it's about those things you discover when you go cruising and sailing, and those things I hope you discover. Greece and the coast of Turkey, you know there are a lot of castles and ruins uh, spreading over thousands of years. And, and in fact, that's like one of the cool things to go see is, is just to kind of have that atmosphere that be able to touch uh, things that are, you know, were thousands of years old and and, and give you a real sense of, you know, what it was like back in the day, so to speak. But Rhodes, Greece is a kind of a special place for me. Um, I lived there for a couple of years. Um, I based uh, my charter business out there doing the coast of Turkey as well as the islands in the Dodecanese. Um, I had lots of great adventures, met lots of great people. But one of the key things to being in a place like Rhodes, in which there are layers and layers and layers of history, um, exhausting history, um, is the sort of self-evaluation that one goes through. And I, Rhodes is a great place uh, to charter from. So if people are thinking about doing a nice charter or whatever, Rhodes is a great place. There's a bunch of charter companies there. Um, the sailing around Rhodes is fantastic. Um, when the Meltemi blows, it um, can be a little bit difficult, but there's no port that isn't you know interesting and worthwhile to sit in and let the winds pass. And you also have the, you know, your ability, because you can literally see Turkey from there. So it's not like it's a far, far away place. For West Coast sailors, it's a little like uh, seeing Catalina off in the distance um, in Southern California. It's, it, it's, it's available, it's interesting, um, and it's fun, and it's great sailing. Um, a lot of community sailors, a lot of big mega yachts spend the summer in Greece and Turkey. Um, I've met tons of celebrities in Rhodes um, who were on vacation. Their boats were there. They, you know, they were chartering boats or they own their own boats. And, you know, just the whole atmosphere of the place is, is kind of cool. Um, but I wanted to tell a story about, you know, the the reason and and how to uh, travel, you know, how to open up your mind to travel. I think a lot of people in general, um, I may be wrong, but a lot of people in general travel to see things, and they see things. Okay, they go they go to Notre Dame in Paris. They say, Oh yeah, okay, I saw that. 
off they go to the next thing. You know, the three-day tour in a bus or cruise ship. You know, you stop at a port in Croatia and go, oh, okay, yeah, this is very pretty. Okay, great. I'll buy a trinket and then get back on the boat and kind of go back into that same sort of bubble that you live in at home. Traveling is about opening up your eyes and about opening up your experience and about learning about what is there. And traveling by boat is, is, is as luxurious a way to travel and learn as anything else. Because as we all know, for any of us who have done any kind of cruising or extensive uh, chartering in a cruising area, you end up interacting with the people that were around the boat area, okay? Um, Greece is, is kind of weird in a sense that the boating area in Greece is, is somewhat finite, but everybody in the, on an island is generally involved with the boats, with boats or some kind of boat, whether it be fishermen or whatever the case may be. But this is a way that you can... Um, experience and open up your mind, open up your heart, open up your intellect. And really, it's kind of the whole purpose of Offshore Explorer, which is to be able to go in, see a place, know something of its history, and set up finding and creating and enjoying relationships with people who, who live there. Okay? And this is an important aspect of one's personal growth it helps you look it helps you look and see how the world is and what your place in that world is so this is a this is an important aspect of travel um last time i spoke about greece i talked about simi and i talked about the adventure of uh sailing from Greece to uh, the Caribbean, um, but spent most of the podcast talking about uh, Sicily. But Rhodes was my base. And it's an important place for me. And I think it's an important place if you look at Rhodes, not so much as a tourist, but as, as a voyager in time and space. So I make this reference about sitting on my boat in Mandraki Harbor, Rhodes, Greece. Um, you're surrounded by uh, history, um, a history of exhausting effort, mortal combat, all driven over the conflict of whose God is the true God. You know, it's when you sit there in the harbor, you and you see how peaceful everything is with the hustle and bustle of the port and the tourists and stuff, and you can make all the jokes you want. But it's... Thousands of people have died for this place because of their idea. So Rhodes is the largest continuously occupied fortress city in the world. The Colossus of Rhodes stood there in 290 BC. And you have to understand that this was a very important landmark. It's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. They said it was made of brass. Um, it was very shiny. Um, it was about the sun gods, Delos. And it was a place that beckoned people to come and make it an open port. Rhodes itself has always been a center for trade. And the, and the reason that it is is by its location. If you come out of the Middle East, um, you're going to have to stop at Rhodes at some point, uh, especially back in ancient times when people really didn't sail at night. They sailed mostly during the day. So they would put into certain ports. So Rhodes was a place that you could stop, you could refurbish, you could get water, you could get food. And you could trade before you left and went to wherever your ultimate destination was. It is an open city, and it had been an open city, and it had flourished for a thousand years. And then it became a very sort of formidable 
military place when the Knights of St. John, during the Crusades, began building the actual fortress city. So when the Knights of St. John came, they built a lot of this city. And if you have the opportunity to wander around the, the ramparts, um, you will see that this is in a very impressive, very, very impressive place. And the whole idea of Christianity um, being this exclusive, I am the only God idea um, was a very was very exclusionary to the people of Rhodes. Because Rhodes was filled with all sorts of people. You'll notice if you go walking around Rhodes that there are mosques, um, there are synagogues, and there are churches. It's a very interesting place because at after the Knights of St. John uh, were literally kicked out of, uh, of Rhodes, um, they were kicked out of Rhodes by Suleiman the Magnificent in 1522. It was a siege that, uh, that took six months, um, hundreds of thousands of men and thousands of ships. And if you, if, if you are into any kind of military history, and I mean, I like military history, I don't like to dwell on it too much, but the sense of place and the size of this fortress and you know, how, where you land your troops, how you climb the castle walls. I mean, the whole physical impediment is um, quite breathtaking. But anyway, the Muslims won. And the Knights of St. John were sort of crowded into a castle at the end of the quay called, I think it's called St. Nicholas. And Suleiman the Magnificent said to the Knights of St. John, look, you know, just go, please, just just get out of here. So he, he let them go from this castle. And it's it sort of marks the, the very end of the quay for Mandraki Harbor, which is where the Colossus of Rhodes stood and where if you're sailing, you're probably going to put your boat in and go shopping from and spend a night, etc. So it's kind of cool in that regard. So the Knights of St. John left, and they went to Malta. And, and they built this huge Knights of St. John thing from Malta. And, and of course, then the, the whole uh, evolution of the Crusades and um, the Knights um, all returning back, and, and then the Knights of um, uh, St. John sort of becoming the Order of Christ and then you kind of get the the whole process of them eventually becoming and and and, and a dangerous sect of uh, crazy military people that were essentially um, admonished and 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 killed um, by a French king, and then they rushed into Portugal, and from Portugal then you get Henry the Navigator, which are this whole lineage of the Knights of um, the Order of the Knights and St. John and, and all the rest of this, and then they began exploring again. So there's this sort of um, circular history of the same sort of group of people that have been going around the world um, as evangelists, military evangelists in that regard. But anyway, so these ideas were really sort of, you know, they're floating around, they're interesting. I will mention, though, um, the Ottomans controlled Rhodes uh, from 1522 until 1912. And they allowed any uh, religion to practice there. So it became a truly open place, whereas before the Knights of St. John wouldn't let the, you know, Muslims, you know, Muslims this, Muslims that. But it just shows the sort of graciousness of one religion um, and the ungraciousness of another. Rhodes is a great place to vacation. There's no doubt about it. It's always sunny most of the time. Um, they have, you know, lots of hotels and you know, bars, it, it kind of moves back and forth between 
tourists, very, very touristy, and and some quiet places off in the in the mountains, like you know up at Lindros and a few other places, which are really, really beautiful, and um, they're just just nice places to relax and sort of recharge your batteries. But I lived there for two years, and I found that Easter in Rhodes, Greek Easter, was one of the most interesting, and to the Greeks, the biggest um, calendar holiday. And I learned so much about this history and the history within the people and how it translated into a kind of understanding that I found with myself. Um, it helped me understand some of my own thoughts, my own feelings about religion and faith and sailing. So the first Easter was established in thir- uh, 325 AD. Um, they fixed the date of worship um, based on pagan worship cycles. Uh, if you're reading our for reading the calendar, you will see it's it's the first uh, it's the first full Sunday after the first full moon of the vernal equinox, um, and and it everything is you know put in to to together, and that's pretty much how the Catholic Church operates. Um, it really is established from the bishops in Nicaea. Um, you know, long before the real power of the Catholic Church um, began to grow. And the dates are basically shared by all sorts of calendars, the Sumerian calendar, Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, Hebrew, Julian, and and finally the Gregorian um, calendar. And it's important because the navigation in this area was, was... kind of depended on how you used your calendar and what calendar you went by. You know, it, it was good for planting, it was good for, for fishing, it was good for sailing. I mean, a lot of things fall into how you live your life within the the, the dates and months of the calendar. Um, to, so today, you know, mostly it's it's the tourist season's in or the tourist season's out. That's kind of the basic the basic idea. So Easter was established on the heathen calculation for planning and worshiping Mother Earth. The sense of spring renewal and celebration is not lost on the bishops in the church. Um, there's a lot of festivals, um, and one of the interesting festivals is is in the port. Um, they throw uh, wreaths into the port it's a it's a it's a, a kind of a phallic symbol um uh it's a part of a maypole um celebration and and it, but they throw these wreaths into the port and and then they have a a bunch of young men um all you know 18 19 20 whatever somewhere in that that vicinity and they have a bunch of girls all standing in the back dressed in very pretty white dresses with flowers in their hair. And they're all holding little bouquets and all the rest. And the priest says, go. And then all the guys jump in the water and swim to get this wreath. And it's a fight. I mean, once you get it, that doesn't mean you're going to make it back to, 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 to present it to whomever, right? So there's this... <laughs> This crazy, practically everybody drowning in very cold water in May, I might add. And these guys are just fighting and fighting and fighting. Eventually, somebody gets the wreath. Everybody else kind of gives up. He climbs up out of the bay. And then the priest anoints him, so to speak. And then he gets to hand the wreath to his girl. And she accepts the wreath, and that's sort of like they're gonna be married kind of thing. And then they're sort then the whole crowd, the the swimmers and the other girls, they all join and they they lift this couple up and they carry him down the street with the priest behind them and they're waving and they're cheering and they're singing and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And I thought this was a, an amazing 
you know, this is, this is life. This is an amazing kind of thing going on. And I was really um, quite happy to, to be able to see it. And it was a, a comfort in a sense that these rituals um, existed to give people a path to expressing what they've already been expressing in terms of their their desires and 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 relationships and 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 it was sort of this ordination of of legality towards the the couples moving forward so i found that to be kind of interesting and then as everybody moved on from this sort of crazy 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 jumping in the water and chasing things like that I became kind of deeply moved by the whole process. Um, you know, I'd never experienced anything like that in my life, and nor have I'm sure anybody else, to be a part of a, you know, a social ritual that gave you the okay to be with a woman. of this was explained to me by a very good friend of mine named Peter. He was an American, um, Greek origin, and he had moved his wife and kids, all New Yorkers. They lived in Manhattan. He worked on Park Avenue as an architect, um, made some dough, um, was involved in a lot of interesting things, and finally just said, screw it. I'm not doing this kind of stuff anymore. And they bought this lovely little house up in the mountains, very humble, uh, very lovely, big piece of property. And, um, but he had a boat, um, he had a, a, a little swan, um, down in the harbor and he would do charters, um, during the summer, um, just as kind of something to do, I suppose. The rest of the time he would do some architectural stuff, but for the most part, he was, he was retired at the, at the ripe old age of being in his forties, but not retired like, you know. He's sitting on a stack of gold coins. Um, still had to work. His wife had to work. They just sort of dropped out and found an alternative way to live. And one of the things he wanted for his kids was for them to experience what Greek island life was about. So Peter helped me a lot. He, Of course, he spoke uh, perfect fluent Greek, and he helped me a lot in terms of of going to stores and ordering things that I needed. And a lot of Greeks, by the way, in their education systems usually speak at least one other language. Um, generally it's American, but um, Greeks and Turks in general, um, they all often will speak several different languages. I know in Turkey, a carpet salesman probably on average would speak about five different languages. Uh, this is a carpet salesman. So, and they could sell you in whatever language they were talking to you in. Um, so language is, a, is one of those uh, tools that people in that part of the world use um, in order to make a living, um, uh, even though uh, their primary language is, is Greek. So Peter invited me up. He gave me a list of stuff. Um, to bring to the house. And um, this was a small list of, <laughs> of ridiculous amount of items. So, but he gave me a list and he said, look, just pick one of these and we'll be, we'll be good. And you can come up to, to, the, to the house and enjoy it. So the list, and I have to tell you this because it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, the list was uh, 40 kilos of ground lamb 10 kilos of grape leaves, 100 kilos of rice, 20 kilos of olives, 20 kilos of feta cheese. So he would supply the rest. And uh, he just told me that, you know, pick one of those and tell me which one you're going to pick. Um, I actually ended up picking the 10 kilos of grape leaves. The 40 kilos of ground lamb were chosen by somebody else. So I kind of get out of that. 
but in order to get it, you had to stand in line at the the store, the grocery store, and you'd see all these people. They were ordering like you know a whole lamb, you know, eighty pounds of ground lamb, you know, just enormous amounts that you would never even conceive in an American grocery store that you would order even for Thanksgiving or, you know, it's a big thing to order a big turkey for Thanksgiving. I mean, if if the Greeks were going to order turkeys, they'd probably order 15 of them. I mean, it's that kind of crazy because there's a lot of people that come and go to the Easter celebrations and and everybody has to eat. I mean, you can't go into a Greek house without drinking and eating. It's just, you can't, it, it's rude not to partake. So we hopped on, my girlfriend and I at the time, we hopped on my little um, Yamaha monkey bike, which is a little tiny scooter. It's pretty fast. I, keep it, I kept it on the boat. Um, it could fold up and I can put it in a lazarette. And it was probably one of the best purchases I ever made uh, for the boat because I, it was heavy, but I could struggle and get it out and get it on land, set it up, and then we were free. We could go anywhere we wanted on the thing. And it would go 35, 40 miles an hour real easily and had a basket on it so we can carry stuff. And And my girlfriend at the time, she could carry, hold stuff in the back and sit on it with me, and it was very convenient. So we went a day early, um, not expecting to stay up at Peter's house, but we, you know, we took the 10 pound, 10 kilos of uh, grape leaves and a couple of bottles of wine, and we just wound our way up through the mountains. Um, Beautiful drive. Um, And we got up to his house and unloaded, and there were people already at his house. And Peter comes out and he says, oh, I'm so happy you're here. And, you know, here's everybody, you know, introducing me to everybody in the in the kitchen and here's where the grape leaves go and there's a whole bunch of women in there and they're 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 cooking and you know they're working and stuff He's, and peter says come on we're going to do the pit we're going to you know we're going to roast uh, uh, a whole lamb out here and i came out to the pit and he was just sort of setting up the fire and all the rest of this stuff and you know he says we're getting ready and stuff why don't you sit down and have a glass of wine with us so the wine was actually in um, five-gallon jerry cans. It was from Crete, Cretan wine. It was red, tasted like grape juice with a little cherry in it. Um, was very drinkable in a kind of juicy way. And even though I had a little alcohol-like radiator fluid kind of taste aftertaste to it once you had your first glass that taste disappeared and it became the easiest thing to drink well a couple of more people came and another couple of people came and the next thing you know we're sitting around with this wine and five gallon jerry canned and there was 12 of them and we're just sitting there drinking this red wine out of these little tiny glasses and uh, chatting about this and talking about sailing and all the rest of this kind of stuff and the next thing you know i was so drunk this stuff kicked my butt like you cannot believe and time just passed it was like i i'd never been quite that high um and the Greek guys who had drunk this wine all their lives were just laughing, saying, yeah, 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 you can't buy drugs like this, and da, 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 and they were going on and on. And I don't know what sort of special things were in this wine, but boy, um, I was having a good time, and we were laughing, and we kept moving forward, and 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 I kept drinking more little tiny glasses, you know. It was just like they were two gulps, and you were done with your glass and filling it up again. And the next thing you know, you were just. And then, then, and then Peter's wife was bringing out all kinds of food for us to eat. So you know, it's a part of the process. And the kids were running around, and the, there was, a, I think, a dog and some cats and blah 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 blah. 
Anyway, sitting in this backyard was absolutely beautiful and, and beautiful flowers all around us. And I was very, very drunk. And my girlfriend had, she was a little loaded as well as, as the women in the kitchen were all, everybody was, you know, drinking wine. So rather than drive all the way back to the boat and then have to turn around because it was, it was a not long trip, but I was in no condition to drive. So we decided, um, they I think Peter decided for us, come to think of it, that we would stay the night. And we did. And the next morning, I woke up with a hangover like I have never had in my life. This hangover um, was excruciating. I felt like I had been poisoned. It was insane. The wine tasted great. And maybe that aftertaste that I had forgotten about after I had a few, a few drinks, um, had a little more antifreeze in it than anything else. And, um, I mean, I was aching and I had a headache. I, I was stiff as a board. I was, it was, I uh, was not well. Um, but you know, everybody was very nice. Um, uh, really strong black coffee, some pastries, um, they made me eggs and, and, you know, some good French bread and, and, you know, kind of work towards getting it, getting my act together, so to speak. My girlfriend, she was, she was a little ragged as well and kind of everybody was really. And, um, I just didn't know to what extent, um, they were because I was so self-involved with my own pain that I, I wouldn't know. I, I couldn't tell you. So we kind of got our act together a little bit. And we had started the fire pit um, later or late in the evening. And um, Peter, surprisingly, had been up very, very early in the morning. And the pit was red hot. It was the right temperature. Um, and the whole lamb was sitting on the pit and um, he was turning it. And I came out with my coffee. I said, hey, man, good morning. Um, I have a wicked headache. He said, oh, well, this will help. He said, I'll keep you in the coffee. He says, just turn this spit. So there I am turning the spit in their backyard. Lovely day. Just, you know, slowly turning it and smelling the lamb, you know, sizzle. Um, and, and just making this wonderful smell and all the herbs were, you know, rubbed on the lamb and, and I'm standing there with a big giant cup of coffee. And there's one thing about being an American, we always have big coffees. The rest of the world doesn't. America is all big coffees. So we were all sitting around strong coffee from the kitchen. Some platters of food came out. And then we just kind of picked up, started eating. And then, you know, every time I looked over one of those uh, five-gallon uh, jerry cans of wine, I kind of shuddered. And Peter says, oh, I have the perfect. This is perfect. This will help you a lot. So he switched the coffee out for Uzo. And if any of you have, have spent some time uh, in the Middle East, Uzo has a lot of different names, but... It's basically kind of a licorice taste. Um, it's one of those alcohols that you could sit and drink and and drink and feel wonderful. And it'll make you feel wonderful. But the moment you stand up, it's like in your knees. And it's like, whoa. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great, great drink. And the Greeks love it. And they drink a lot of it. Um, so I had, uh, he was feeding me some ouzo, and surprisingly, my hangover sort of dissipated. And I was, I was actually feeling very good. I didn't want to think about what would happen after I stopped drinking the ouzo, but, you know, I would suffer that for the enjoyment of being around all these wonderful people and hearing these wonderful stories and people... You know, there was some people even dancing. You know, they had the music, some Greek music, some traditional Greek music. And the old ladies in the kitchen, they were all dancing and holding hands. And it was just, it was just, just a lovely, effluent, uh, beautiful moment in time. 
So while we were sitting around, there was a young priest that came to the house. And we sat down and slowly started to turn the spit of lamb together, and we began to talk. So we're sitting around turning the lamb over and over again and stoking the fire and putting some more wood and some coals and Peter had a special mixture for the fire to give it just the right flavor. And um, Father Michael and I were just sort of leaning in having a pretty much an academic conversation. And I was still suffering from this Cretan wine um, hangover. And I mean, I was, I felt pretty bad. But I was I was really interested in what he was doing or talking about. And before we knew it, you know, Peter came over and he sliced off parts of the lamb and put his temperature uh, thermometer in the lamb and checked everything out. And then he declared, okay, we're, we're, we're done. The lamb is done. We're ready to go. So we picked up the lamb, both ends of the spit. And um, actually, I didn't, but two two guys came with Peter, and they, they put it on this big table that had been laid out um, with plastic cloth uh, on the table, and they laid the lamb out, and then they started cutting the lamb up for, uh, for dinner. And uh, it was just, it was so good. The lamb, I cannot tell you folks how good this lamb was. Um it was it was amazing, and of course we're sit, we're all sitting outside, and there was a big long table that was made, and it was probably close to forty people there. So this is kind of a big it's a big deal, um, you know. And people would come in, and they'd see Father Mike, and he'd kiss his ring, and and you know they kind of go that, that kind of thing just drives me crazy. You know, oh, I kiss his, you know, that kind of thing. There were. Just, you know, all sorts of people laughing and giggling and telling stories. There was a couple of musicians that came and they had they were playing balalakas and you know, but they were wearing death metal t shirts, which was very cool. Because actually they had a metal band, but this was this was a gig they were doing because it was Easter and they were related to somebody that was there. You never know who's related to whom and all that. So there's these big juicy platters of lamb that are set out on tables at intervals, and there's grease everywhere, and I mean grease in a good way. I mean I love that you know that savory, greasy, like oh this is just you know sumptuous kind of living type thing, and you know this is so traditional because even back to three twenty two B C. Uh, people ate this way. This is what they ate. This is how they ate. Um, they may not have had uh, forks and knives and napkins per se. They may not have had plasticware. They may not have had you know certain types of dishes. Uh, but they, all of this stuff was there, and it was the same thing. And as humans, we're experiencing is an experience that's happened, an event that's happened all through time. And it's a really kind of interesting thing. What's interesting also is the fact that this experience, this celebration of Easter, okay, and and the way it's celebrated might have put you in danger in previous generations, like serious danger. Like this, this would have been a political act, it's interesting. And and the Greeks are very aware of this. They're very aware of saying, look, this is something that's sacred. We keep this in a box. Nobody can touch this. And even during the reign of Suleiman the Magnificent, the Greeks on this island were allowed to celebrate Easter. A very interesting kind of generosity in that way. So we all sat and enjoyed all of this food and you can't i can't it's like buffet times 10 you know 
these older women dressed in black coming by, they're setting down, you know, more um, stuffed olives, you know, some rice, some this, some that, some bread, some this, some pita, this, the lamb, the da 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 da. And it's just, it's constant. It's just constant. It's like, come on, eat more, eat more, eat more, eat faster. And, and eat before the food gets cold. And, you know, and everyone was laughing and, 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 and having just a wonderful time. And then Father Michael stood up and everything went very silent. And he gave a prayer and sort of a small sermon about the, you know, about Christ rising from the dead and what it meant and and all the rest of this kind of stuff and and he made a sort of historical um, reference to the fact that both Peter, the Saint Peter and Saint Paul, the apostles, the original apostles, had left Judea by boat and had come to Rhodes, and Rhodes was the first place, quote unquote that they had actually started to prothelicize. It was very interesting. And in fact, he, after he was finished and everybody went back and, you know, they were thanking him and we all went back just eating and drinking more wine. He leaned over and said, you know, Scott, I says, I'll show you where Paul gave his first sermons in Rhodes, Greece. And I thought, now that is a pretty cool thing. That is a pretty cool thing. And I might also mention that uh, John also came and passed through Rhodes, Greece. So the very idea that you could, you know, it's just not Palestine. You know, it's just not Jerusalem, right? It's just all these other places that have this sort of magnificent um, relationship to history, it's, it, and it kind of opens your heart up. It sort of makes you, even if you're not a believer, you're sort of like, okay, so this person physically was here. And, you, and, and, and he had this to say, and here's where people listened to him. Here's where people um, got their ideas. So Father Mike kind of, uh, he ate and um, declared to me that tomorrow, he says, I'll take you to uh, meet my father. And then Peter told him my, my boat was docked down in Mendraki, and he says, I will see you at 10 o'clock. I said, okay. I mean, I was like, I had been drinking now for two days straight. Um, I had eaten more than I thought possible, and I was looking forward to loving my pillow. Um but at 10 o'clock the next morning, Father Michael knocked on the door, um, knocked on the back of the boat. So I, I popped up, and, and um, I, I got on the scooter with him. Um, and, you know, he's got this flowing robe kind of thing. And I'm sitting on the back of the scooter with him, you know. And he drives like a maniac um, through all the streets of Greece. And he's just like a kid on this motorcycle. He's got this, you know, beard and... Other, you know, it's just hilarious in one regard, but in another regard, it's very serious. So we zoomed and zoomed and zoomed all through the little city, and we went down to the we went down to the boatyard, and um, he introduced me to his uh, his father, and um, his his f- father invited me to have a cup of coffee with them. He sent a small boy to go get uh, little Greek coffees. And um, it was just, um, it was a wonderful, you know, boatyard experience um, up on the, nailed to the, uh, one of the beams inside the shed where he built the boats and kept his equipment was um, pictures of uh, Father Mike or Mikey, as you call them, um, you know, and, and they had this sort of interesting uh, repartee back and forth about how's a God doing today, and he should be out protecting fishermen, and, and da, da, da. I mean, they go back and forth, and it was a real kind of wonderful sort of father-son um, moment to see that. And, and we looked at, you know, he was talking about 
how to build a boat, where he learned to build a boat, and, and the tools that he used in terms of just the bandsaw and the ruler um, and how he shaped the wood to fit the kind of wood he used. They used a kind of pine and cedar. Um, and this goes back um, to Phoenician times. You know, the Phoenicians originally are from, um, which would be Lebanon. And there's a lot of uh, cedar trees there. And that's what they used to build boats. Um, and cedar is actually a fairly good material to use because it's easy to work with. It's hard enough and, and water resistant enough to, uh, to make up a, a, a pretty good, uh, a really good boat. But they use a lot of pine now along with the cedar. And the, the pine sits out in the yard and um, just cures out in the, out in the yard. And it's a different kind of uh, it's a different kind of pine than you would find in in you know um, in America. Um, it seems it seemed a little harder. It seemed um, a little closer in a sense to what oak might be. Um, they didn't have teak uh, there. Um, teak teak is very expensive. Um, to have shipped in. So there's really no teak to use to, to build boats. Um, maple, not really. Um, any case, it's mostly cedar and pine that they build these boats with. And the Turks do the same thing. They build the same kind of boat. Um, they've got a very um, vibrant um, boat building industry over there. A lot of craftsmen building boats and stuff like that. And Later on, I'll get into a little bit more than about that. So we got the opportunity to stand there and drink some coffee and talk to his father. And um, then Father Michael sort of abruptly said, okay, let's go. And we, we left. Uh, I later got to come back, and, and I wanted to do a, a film on his father building a boat, but I never had the opportunity to do it. Um, so we, we got back on the scooter and we swung down past the gates onto this little used path between the fortress walls and the water. So we were on the outside of the castle and the castle walls, you know, at that point are massive. They're very tall. There's like this moat and this is a, this is on the water, literally on the water in the bay. So you sort of got this little piece of land. It's where... If you were attacking the castle at this thing, you know, people up in the castle could just pick you off like unbelievable. Um, it would be that easy. And um, so, in fact, what we did is we kind of go down and we, we, we sort of wound our way around the castle walls and some of the um, abutments that came out and some of the towers that came out. And we came across a little building that quite honestly looked like a large kiln. It, it was um, sort of round, so to speak. And it was built in the 12th century. Um, and it was a synagogue. And it was a Portuguese synagogue. Portuguese Jews kept it up. And there was a red-headed rabbi named Abraham there. And he was in his 30s. Um, and he had a picnic basket uh, with sandwiches and wine waiting for us. And Father Michael introduced us. Now, these two have known each other since they were children. And they're both very smart. Um, Abraham um, studied in France. Um, he was a very accomplished um, historian, as well as uh, uh, a writer, a philosopher. And so Abraham and Father Michael, Rabbi Abraham, Father Michael, and myself sat on a big flat rock that was tilted toward the sea and had a picnic lunch. And we talked philosophy. And we talked about God. And as it turns out, this rock is where all the new religions people like the Apostle Paul, people like the Apostle John would come and stand, and Peter, Apostle Peter, 
would come and stand on this rock outside the castle at the time, because when they came, the castle was just being built, and would stand there and deliver their sermons. The weight of that is transforming. And I, as I reiterate before, I'm not a terribly religious person, but this really moved me. And these two young men are the intellects that will drive their respective religions for years to come. When they're old men um, and they've accomplished everything that they want to accomplish and write, they would just keep going on and on and on, and they would be the backbone of the church. They'd be the muscle of the church, if, if you take the metaphor that the church is a living organism. We sort of were working out some of the finer points of the Old Testament or the New Testament and talked about the poor Philistines and how in the Old Testament God smited them so much, it's amazing that they even existed. And, you know, they came across with some of the finer points of, you know, a single God, the, uh, deism, a number of, uh, you know, how Sartre fit into the explanation of why God exists or didn't exist. And they would make their arguments, you know, very strongly and very clearly and um, cogent arguments, I guess, is the best way to say it. But at the bottom line, it's Father Michael asked me, he says, what, what is faith to you? And I don't define faith the way those two define faith. If you ask me to define religion, I can recite you book and verse and kind of go through all of that stuff. But when I'm sailing, if you experience it like, like one would experience a similar exercise, say in a yoga class or chanting for a long time as they as they do in some of the Greek churches, and chanting is also big in, in Buddhism, because it sort of changes your physical being, it changes your frame of mind. And the act of sailing reframed my mind in such a way as not to be aware of the past, nor of the future, but just to simply be in the present. And since I was a young boy and started to think about these kinds of questions on my own, the question of faith in God has always troubled me. I've never been able to make that leap. I can buy all the rest of the stuff. I could rationalize it all I want. But making that step is something I've never been able to, to do. And so I've been lucky enough to have that choice. I've been lucky enough to study enough to kind of understand what that choice means to me. It doesn't it affect my spirituality in any way. And I think a lot of people feel this way. I mean, I think a lot of people feel that being religious on one hand and then going sailing and standing in the middle of a of the ocean on, on their boat, and the deck is rolling under their feet, and they're the only people that are there. I, I think that what we ended up talking about is this sort of, of being able to, how a sailor or a fisherman has a special kind of faith. When you're alone on a boat, uh, the deck rolling under your feet, there's no land, you're in the middle of the ocean, um, there's no future, there's no past, it's only present is what, you, what you're being, the society isn't around you, there's no one telling you what to do, you're just there with this faith that you're going to bring fish out of the sea, or you're just there because you're sailing. And this physicalness that changes you um, over time and how you feel about this is a kind of um, physical spirituality that that chanting tries to get to, that that uh, prayer tries to get to, that um, 
dancing, um, certain kinds of music, all try to get you to uh, evoke that feeling. That feeling, can it be evoked inside you? But in this case, it's, it's sailing. It's just sailing. There's nothing else there, okay? There's the wind, the sea, the waves, the consistency, all right? And the freedom of the spirit to be at that point. So having had this kind of conversation, um, we talked about the faith of, of fishermen, which in, a fa- in fact is a true faith. Anybody that can stand in a boat and throw a hook and, hook and line over the side and stare into nothing and wait for a fish to come to your hook has to have a deep faith. It's not technical. It's a it's faith. So my experience with Father Mike and Rabbi Abraham ended up with essentially my headache from the Cretan wine going away. Um, the lunch was lovely. I got to stand on the rock that the sermons were delivered. I got to understand a little more about how a city um, has evolved for thousands of years. And I understood that this was a microcosm for life in general, and that my presence there was adding to its history, and its history was adding to my presence. So Father Michael took me back down to my boat. I got on, you know, I wished him good luck and said goodbye. And he he zoomed off on his uh, little scooter, you know, with his beard flying in the wind and his, you know, just zooming along and people waving to him and him blessing them with one hand and steering with another hand and... If you've been in Greece, you kind of know know what that story is. I got on my boat. I decided to, um, I was going to go to Turkey. And so I left Mandaraki Harbor. And um, I I had a charter I was picking up over there. So I sailed over there. And because it's, you know, spring, spring charters, you don't really get a lot of them in that area because of the, you know, the weather could be a little bit daunting, but this was a special one. And when I arrived in Turkey, I just, I literally, it made me see the country and the people in a completely different light. I mean, I was aware of the generosity of, of the Ottomans. I was aware of the deep connection between both religions and how they serve each other. They're against each other at times, but in fact, they actually serve each other. And being on a boat allowed me to be the intermediary between that kind of experience, because at the end of the day, it's the same experience for anybody. And I think sailing, really sailing, in the ocean, nobody around, sailing is a great place to restore your faith. And that's kind of how my learning of a place became the learning of myself. Thanks for sharing, Scott. So what's uh, next week's episode about? Given that Halloween is coming up and uh, there's not many scary things that um, frightened me, per se, when I've been cruising around and boating, etc. You know, all those little do's and don'ts like, you know, don't leave a port on a Friday. Um, Things like that. So uh, there's a lot of heritage and there's a lot of interesting things. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twang. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas. <laughs>